Chapter 18 Depot Renoir tapped a large city on Durant's map with the stem of his pipe. Amiens burns. They all knew the medieval city to some degree. Each, save Strothman and Unger, had used it as a way station en route to the front at one point or another. This would not be the first time it had caught fire since 14. The Germans had their Krupps built Big Bertha guns ranged on it and had delighted in sending the 420mm shells screaming down onto the city at random intervals to the steady terror of its occupants. But this burn was different. The smoke and ash cascading upward suggested that the entire city was ablaze, not just select cavities struck by high explosive. The black color of the smoke told them that no water was being pumped from the Somme River, which neatly bisected the city to try to staunch the flames. Renoir traced a line on the map to an area roughly ten kilometers east of Amiens. He tapped the spot. We are perhaps here. He pointed to a small dot on the map to the north of their position. We are not far from Mirvaux. Seven or eight kilometers at most. What's in Mirvaux? asked Durant. A British supply depot. Food, weapons, medical supply. Shelter? No. But ten more kilometers from there, yes. I know a place. Fortified? Durant asked. Better. Invisible. Halstead lit a half-smoked player's cut. What's that mean, mate? How to describe? It is a cellar without a house above. The cellar doors are camouflage, yes? You understand? We can shelter, sleep there for the entire night, and no one will ever know. You're sure about this? asked Durant. As sure as I can be of anything. Durant chewed it over. Sounds like as good an option as there is. He looked around the circle. Everyone agreed? There were no signs of discord from the exhausted group. Gerard stood. Eighteen kilometers is a fair piece of ground to cover. We'd best get started. They covered ground at a reasonable pace. By quarter past noon, they were more than halfway to Mervaux. Wolfgang put one jackboot in front of the other. His body did not feel too fatigued but he knew his mind was suffering under the strain. He could not remember with any precision the dreams that had plagued his brief sleep, but he knew he had seen his brother Sebastian's face throughout them, and that the hand he held in the dream, the one that had pulled him along on the journey, had belonged to his departed sibling. Everything else in the dream floated away, like the smoke of the Amiens fire. The more he reached for it, the more it slipped through his fingers, misting away into the ether, Unrecallable. Jonah Unger interrupted his thoughts. Hauptmann, wohin gehen wir? Do you know where we are going? A town called Mervaux. The Frenchman said there are supplies there. Then to a shelter a bit further on. Wolfgang looked at the boy. He realized Jonah's horror must be compounded by his lack of English. Are you all right? Jonah nodded. I think so. I don't know. I believe that the American, James, thinks this is a nightmare. Wolfgang glanced back to where James marched behind them. James flashed him a smile, which Wolfgang responded to with a curt nod. 
Perhaps the boy was a simpleton. How does he explain that he just went to sleep and woke up? And yet the nightmare continues. Jonah smiled ruefully. Yes, I think he's wrong too. Then what do you think it is? Jonah walked a few steps before speaking his piece. Golems. Golems. Jonah nodded his head in the affirmative. I did not see what happened in the church at Talma. But what they described. A golem, I am sure. In Prague, a rabbi made a man of mud from the riverbank and raised it up with the name of God. The golem was to defend the Jews in the ghetto from the coming pogrom, and it did. It killed all who came to destroy them with only its hands. But Rabbi Law forgot to take the name of God back from the golem on the Sabbath, and so it rampaged and murdered any that came before it, until the rabbi could mark it with the name of death. And that stopped it. The golem turned to dust and was stored in the attic of the temple to be reanimated when the time was right. Wolfgang nodded his head. Yes, I know the story. Jodo looked at him askance. But you are not Jewish. Wolfgang laughed. My brother could not sleep at night after he read Meyrink's book, Der Gollum. We were at the war college then, and I gave him a good ribbing about it. He forced me to read it, if I was so brave, so I did. It gave me nightmares too, but I pretended it did not. Jonah did not find the humor in it that Wolfgang did. I haven't read it. But Rabbi Jakob at the temple in Munich told the story, and it gave me nightmares enough. My mother and father told me it was not a true story. But all the same, now perhaps they are proven wrong. Wolfgang nodded. I suppose that's as good a theory as any. But the things chasing us are not made of mud. They continued on for a bit. Then Jonas said his unspoken fear aloud. I wonder if this is happening in Munich too. I wonder if Munich burns as Amiens does. And if my parents are chased by golems of flesh right now. Wolfgang did not know the answer to those questions. Both men allowed the conversation to end, focusing instead on the path before them. It was mid-afternoon when they approached the British supply depot at Miveau. There were no clouds in the sky, but the sense of an impending storm, the oppressive feeling of claustrophobia that came with it, was tugging at all of them. Durant called a halt below the top of a hill, and now they waited in cover for Renoir to emerge from the woods. The industrious Belgian had gone ahead to scout, and the ten minutes they awaited his return seemed to stretch interminable. Renoir had stripped his trench coat and helmet. In his right hand was the hammer Francois acquired in Talmar. In his left, he carried a brutal serrated trench dagger. A row of sharp spikes ran along the arc of the brass knuckle-style handguard, and ended in a single spike at the base. He moved purposefully through the stretch of woods just outside the supply depot, coming to a halt behind a large fallen tree. The depot was housed atop the foundation of an old factory floor, 
Rings of barbed wire had been erected around the entire building to keep the goods in and the thieves out. There were a handful of original walls still standing, but most had fallen before the turn of the century, and the surrounding forest had foreclosed on the land around it. Now the flagstone floors were covered in towers of pine boxes draped in camouflaging tarps. Combined with the foliage, it had kept the German biplanes from finding it and striking a rich target, for the pine boxes were filled with everything an army might need to propagate itself and promote its existence. Rations and stocks of rum, rifles and pistols, machine guns, mortars, shining pyramids of high explosive, shrapnel, and poison gas shells filled the depot. Renoir had done business here many times. Captain Mason Ambrose, the commander of the British Supply Company that fostered the gear and goods for the British Expeditionary Force, was bored to death and always amenable to discreet trade. Renoir was experienced at that craft before the advent of the war. He simply shifted his inventory to what he gathered from the battlefield, turning German rifles, helmets, and medals into rum, and then turning that rum into whatever his heart desired. Renoir hoped against hope that Captain Ambrose was still here and ready to do some business. He looked for movement and saw none. He made his way along the length of the fallen tree toward the front gates. No sentries awaited. He worried his lower lip with his teeth. No good could come from this. He made one final inventory of the area and seeing no sign of life, he stepped out of cover and crossed the road. He padded through the gate unchallenged, disappearing into the maze of crates and equipment. Durant and the rest sat hidden in the woods, ensconced just below the ridgeline of the long hill. His mind slipped back into the memory that his dream had stoked into life. Matthew Durant sat in the sniper hide, smoking a cigarette. David watched his older brother quietly. Matthew caught David looking at him sideways. What? You know that'll spook the game. If Papa smells it, he'll kill you, David said. Matthew puffed the cigarette merrily and grinned. The big bastard will have to catch me first. David shrugged. Just make sure you don't do it if we're out with clients. Yes, Papa, Matthew chided. He stubbed out the cigarette and slipped it into his coat pocket. I'm not particularly in the mood to kill anything today anyway. They sat silent for a time, listening to the occasional bird song and the breeze blowing through the timbers of the large pole pines. What else happened up there? David asked. Up north? A shadow passed over Matthew's face for a brief moment. Lots. Most not worth talking about, Matthew chuckled. But down south, in California. Oh, brother, it's a land of opportunity and lovely ladies of questionable moral character. Matthew smiled and David blushed. A veritable heaven on earth. And no winner to speak of. At least not on their coast. I'd love to see that. I'll take you someday. It's a sight to behold. David glimpsed it first. A deer entered his line of sight and began to feed on a bank of mushrooms strewn at the foot of a tall pine. David swung the barrel of his lever-action Winchester up. He took a bead on her chest cavity and put his finger to the trigger. Matthew placed his palm on the rifle hammer, holding it back. 
David looked over at him. Matthew pointed to the woods behind and to the right of the deer. A speckled fawn, perhaps two weeks old, was hiding, waiting for her mother. David eased off the trigger. That one won't stand a chance on her own, Matthew whispered. David lowered his rifle. Didn't see the baby. That's what I'm here for, brother. Then Matthew saw Nathaniel moving silently through the woods. Despite his size, their father was a born predator. His rifle was at his cheek, and he had it aimed at the grazing doe. Matthew's pistol came out of his holster like a flash of lightning. He raised it and fired before David could react. The shot echoed in the green, and the mother deer and her baby were in flight, vanished before the echo ceased resounding. Nathaniel glared up at the hide and shouted, The bloody hell is wrong with you! Matthew grinned and waved. Sorry, Papa. She was with her baby, and I didn't have the heart to put her down too. Nathaniel muttered a string of curse words to himself. Matthew laughed. Glad to see you haven't completely changed, Papa. He took out his half-smoked cigarette and relit it with his pearl-inlaid lighter. Guess we're done hunting for the day. David smiled and sat back in the hide. It was good to have his brother home. Past good. Durant stirred from the memory that had overtaken him. Strothman was beside him. The two men stared into the thick green canopy, looking for any sign of Renoir's return, with the unspoken hope that the Belgian was all they would see approaching. Strothman looked around at the rest of their exhausted company. It appeared that Jonah, James, and Caitlin had all fallen fast asleep. Durant saw that too. He spoke quietly. Let them rest while they can. As long as they wake up when we need to move, it's for the best. Jonah began to snore. Durant glanced back. Strothman gave Jonah's shoulder a gentle shake, and the snoring subsided. Strothman looked back to where Francois and Isaiah had chosen to set the rear guard of the column. Their presence brought comfort. To Strothman, with their scarred visages, each man looked as if he could probably cut down a dozen golems and eat them for breakfast. He would not soon forget standing on the other end of Isaiah's shotgun, and thought to himself that if Jonah Unger was right, that putting the word death to a golem was enough to turn it back to dust. Perhaps Isaiah's shotgun was up to the task of delivering that stamp. The shotgun was sitting beside Isaiah for now, next to the hatchet he had claimed in Tolmar. The Lewis gun he had liberated from the British camp was set up on its bipod and aimed back down their trail, stalked to Isaiah's shoulder, ready to unleash fire on anyone that might be foolish enough to approach from the rear. Francois's cutlass was out, resting across his thighs. All in all, Strothman felt that their rear was exceptionally well defended. Dr. Halstead got out the remains of his Navy player cut pack and slid the last remaining cigarette between his lips. As he pulled a match out, Durant made eye contact with him and shook his head. Halstead gave him a mildly defiant, querulous glance. Durant eased down the line to where Halstead was sheltered under the ridge of the hill. Anything out there will smell that tobacco a mile away, Durant whispered. Halstead did not lose any of the glare in his eye, but he submitted, carefully putting the cigarette back into its box. Durant returned to his place beside Strothman. Strothman apprised him. When he spoke, it was a quiet statement of fact. 
You are a hunter. Durant continued to search the woods for movement. A bit. My father was a hunter. He taught you well. He did it that. You? My father and uncle would take my brother and myself hunting. Deer, elk, wild boar. Never seen a wild boar. Beasts. Two hundred kilos. Smart and fast. Vicious and cornered. Excellent in schnitzel and bratwurst. Wish we could go find one now or turn it into schnitzel and bratwurst. Strothman smiled. If you think tobacco would draw attention, the smell of bratwurst roasting over an open fire would bring down the entirety of the German army upon us. Durant smiled grimly at the thought. It's not the German army I'm worried about. Then a good bratwurst might be worth dying for just now. Strothman smiled. It is ironic, do not you think, that we sit here, two men, hunters in our former lives, and now we must think of ourselves as prey. Durand's smile was now gone. The irony was not lost on him. He had the same thought but had yet to put it into words. They both saw it at the same time, movement. Durant tracked it with his pistol. Out of the woods came Renoir. He quietly slipped over the bank and joined them. Monsieur, what did you find? Everything your heart desires and more. Anyone there? No one living. We must take what we need and move on if we want to reach shelter by nightfall. Caitlin rifled through crates of olive drab clothing in the supply depot. She had already found a pair of pants and a leather belt to cinch them with, but finding a shirt that did not make her feel as though she was wearing a bedsheet was proving difficult. Isaiah tossed her a pair of rolled-up putties, wrapped them like a bandage, starting at your ankle, all the way up to your knee, snug but not too tight, take some to strain off the margin. Caitlin nodded her thanks. Corporal. Isaiah turned. Yes, miss? Can you help me find a shotgun like yours? Isaiah paused, skeptical. You fired one of these before? Caitlin ridged up a bit at his response. I fired shotguns. But not the pump action. Caitlin conceded the fact. Isaiah set his hatchet aside and unslung the shotgun. He knelt and actioned the pump, ejecting seven shells. He slid one shell into the chamber. Okay. Under your barrel, you got your magazine. It takes six shells up in there. Practiced. He slid a shell beneath the belly of the shotgun. There was a metallic click as it found the carrier latch, disappearing up into the mag. He racked and ejected both shells, then passed Caitlin the shotgun. She empty now, but treat her like she fit to bust. Caitlin took it from him. He handed her a shell of buckshot. She slipped it into the chamber with a gentle snapping sound. Isaiah approved. He gave her a second shell. For the mag, the trick is keep the shell angled up a bit when you're looking for the carrier latch. You feel it click when it's found a spot, then just slide it up and in. Isaiah paused. He laughed out loud. Caitlin looked at him quizzically. Sorry, miss. Just realize it might sound like I ain't talking about loading a shotgun. I promise you, all I'm talking about is loading up this piece. Caitlin copied his motion and slid the shell smoothly into the magazine. 
passed away, miss. He handed her the other shells one at a time, and she loaded them. Isaiah passed her the last shell, and she slid it home. Got that figured out right quick. That give you seven shots. Whip the one in the spout, okay? Anything you can't kill with seven shots, you ain't gonna kill. Caitlin brought it to his shoulder and aimed down the barrel. Isaiah smiled, impressed. You ain't lying you've done that before. Now that thing is truly loaded for bear right here. Let's get that hammer down before we go any further. Pass it here. Caitlin handed him the shotgun, and he gently released the hammer. When that hammer's back, you ready to pop. I got this barrel cut down a bit for close work. You drop into a trench with this bitch, fire low. Cut their legs out from under them. Fire left, bam. Fire right, bam. You gonna drop anything coming from either direction. Jerry's hate this girl. I'm gonna show you something else. You find yourself in a pinch, you can slam fire it. You just point it towards your troubles, hold that trigger down, and pump that action quick as you can. She'll put seven loads of double lot into whatever's coming your way faster than you can say Jack Robinson. Isaiah patted the thing like he would a good hunting dog. He was gifting to a friend. He handed it back to Caitlin. She protested. You'll need this. He pulled off his shotgun shell pouch and passed it to her as well. I got that Lewis gun. And this here hatchet. And they'll do. And there may have to be a shotgun up in this depot somewhere, but you ain't gonna find nothing good as that one. Hope it serve you well. Now take it back when we get out of this here mess. Caitlin felt humbled. Thank you, Corporal. Don't mention it. Isaiah headed in search of food rations, leaving Caitlin alone to find a uniform shirt that would suffice for the journey ahead. Strothman had procured an Enfield rifle and a Webley revolver from the armory. Ahead of him, Jonah and James were lugging a box of hand grenades between them as they made their way through the towering brass pyramids of artillery shells. James came to an abrupt halt. It stopped Jonah short, and Strothman nearly drove into their backs. What's the matter? asked Strothman. James pointed to a massive stack of silver cylinders. Each was banded by rings of red and yellow, stamped with a black coat of arms. Gosh, that's a lot of gas. Jonah looked at the stack of cylinders. James attempted some mime for him. Gas. Poison gas. He twist the knob on the cylinder and... He made a hissing sound and tried to imitate gas dispersing and billowing up with his free hand. You know, gas. Jonah had seen his share on both sides of gas attacks. James shuddered. When he spoke, it was as if he didn't want to awaken the killer sleeping in the containers. And that stuff in tear gas. It's phosgene and chlorine. That's the bad stuff. Makes my skin crawl just looking at them cylinders. Strothman prodded him along. Private, we need to keep moving. Sorry, sir. James fell back in and helped Jonah heft the grenades. He shot one last nervous glance back at the gas shells as they proceeded on. Durant checked his watch. It was coming up fast on 5.30 p.m., two hours until dark and ten kilometers to go. Cross country that would be rough going. Francois came out with a crate of Mackinocky's meat stew and a few cans of jam. He began emptying them into a British field pack. He had swapped out his Man Bertier rifle for a fresh out-of-the-box Enfield and a blackened 21-inch sword bayonet. He had half a dozen magazines and 200 rounds of 303 to go along with it. 
Renoir appeared from the stacks with tins of bully beef and extra canteens. We should be en route as quickly as possible. Francois spoke up. Sergeant Major, we could stay the night here. Renoir set down the food. Perhaps, but there is only one way in. We, oui. she is easier to defend. Correct, but where there is only one way in, there is only one way out. And if the past illuminate the present, standing and fighting is to no avail. We must be able to run. Durant agreed. We should take what we can and go now. Renoir's response was interrupted by a cry from the stacks, followed by Halstead's distinctive Aussie accent. Jesus bloody Christ! Harry fucking Moss!